Hi, I'm Jeffrey, and welcome back to Nightfalls. Come settle in for tonight's soothing bedtime story. As always, don't worry if you fall asleep before the end. You can drift off whenever you're ready. Before we begin, thank you to those of you who have subscribed to Nightfalls Premium. I hope you've been enjoying your ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Thank you for your support. I couldn't do this without it. Come join me beside the fireside and I'll tell you about one of the nights I spent in the company of Circe and the water nymphs. When Devani and I joined them in their whirlpool for the sharing of their stories, of myths that look back through the centuries. It turns out the nymphs and I have more in common than I thought. They too are rather fond of spinning a tale. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the best way to fall asleep with Nightfalls, you can now become a premium supporter. Enjoy the entire back catalogue of Nightfalls classics, all with a rich, immersive and totally ad-free experience. If you love falling asleep to Nightfalls, Nightfalls Premium will elevate your sleep while helping to support myself and the team. We love creating Nightfalls, but without supporters, it wouldn't be possible. Join Nightfalls Premium today in just two taps on both Apple Podcasts or via the Supercast link found in the show notes for all other podcast players. Your sleep will thank you for it, and so will I. If you've been feeling overwhelmed with anxiety lately, try listening to a guided meditation on the Meditation for Anxiety podcast. Meditation is a proven natural way to help you calm down and dissolve stress so you can feel lighter and happier. So subscribe for free today to the Meditation for Anxiety podcast by searching for Meditation for Anxiety on your favorite podcast player. As the heat of the summer sun stretched further and further into the long days, Devani and I had taken to sleeping in late on the beach beside the lake. Together, we enjoyed many long, lazy mornings and scarcely got going until mid-afternoon. By that time, of course, there was the dinner to tend to, and when the last pot had been washed and set out to dry, the day had stretched its legs for long enough and yawned its way into early evening. I realised as the sun dipped beneath the horizon and long shadows tempered the summer heat that that particular day had proven even lazier than usual. It was little wonder we had elected not to busy ourselves about the clearing during the day, 
for by the time the shadows themselves had finally come to feel comfortable and cool, it was almost a minute to midnight. It was Tavani's idea to pull the rowboat down the beach and onto the lake. I didn't doubt that Lyra was already tucked up in bed by that time, and even Anwen had set to sleep herself hours before. Tired as I was, I liked sharing the night with Devani alone. It was so rare for either of us to stay awake late enough to catch Cersei and the nymphs down by the riverbank that I was also rather keen to call in our more nocturnal friends. Having done so little all day, I rather enjoyed stretching my arms. Together, we made fast work of crossing the lake, our paddles falling in time with one another without the need for any kind of count. We'd been together for long enough by then that falling into step with Devani came as naturally to me as drawing breath. When we glided out of the lake and into the stream that led away from nightfalls, we lifted our oars and let the current take us. It was comfortingly familiar to see the nymphs sprawled out on their usual rocky outcrop, which split the stream in two before the river bend. I was even more pleased to find Otto in their company, whom I hadn't been able to find since sundown. Circe waved lazily from her spot, sprawled out on the rocks, and one of the nymphs tucked the end of a rope between Otto's teeth and told him to jump into our boat as we drifted past. Otto landed on my lap and took it upon himself to shake out his fur. No time to worry about the sand and water splattering Devani and I. I wrestled the rope from between his teeth and used it to tether the boat to the rocks where Circe and the nymphs so often bathed beneath the moonlight. You're up late, Luna greeted us as she helped me secure our boat to the rocks. Wiping jet black hair out of her eyes as she came to stand, the water nymph extended a hand and helped Devani and I hop from the rowboat onto the rocks. When we were both safe on land, Luna wrapped her arms around Devani and berated us. You two really must visit more often. It was late enough that even the nymphs seemed as though they were halfway to sleep beneath the silvery moonlight. The nymphs soon got chatting about what we were to do with the night ahead of us. A bedtime story, anyone? Circe suggested, and the rather lethargic chorus sounded in agreement. At once, the nymphs were sliding from the rock and into the water below. Circe ushered us in with her, and I just about had time to rid myself of my shirt 
before we were diving into the warm water and letting it carry us even further downstream. It's not far, Cersei called, as over and over she dipped beneath the surface of the water and crested it with a rounded back, just as a dolphin might. Drifting downstream with the water warm against my skin, I found my mind completely switching off and my body relaxing and stretching out on the surface. I let the water take me, and after a while I felt a hand reach out to grab mine and pull Devani and I into a rocky inlet where the water stilled around us. We followed the nymphs through the night. Under archways, the flow of the river water had worn into the rocks, and through a rock pool that looked as though it couldn't have belonged to any kind of reality, not even one as picturesque as nightfalls. I couldn't believe that I'd lived in the falls for almost a year and not known of the serene rock pool. Wild flowers grew on its banks, and tiny toadstools sprouted among them. The tree canopy wove together above the pool and was thick enough that it almost felt as though we were indoors. Fairy lanterns glowed soft sunset golds and sleepy purples in the branches above us. As the nymphs settled shoulder to shoulder against the sides of the pool, Devani and I squeezed in beside them. It was just deep enough to sit comfortably on the sandy bottom with my shoulders submerged, but my head clear of the water. Cersei whispered something in the old language I had heard her use only a handful of times before. Whatever she said, it had to have been an enchantment of some sort, for the already warm water rose to bath temperature and began to fizz and bubble around us. When we were sitting in the mystical equivalent of a jacuzzi and the bubbles had begun to massage the muscles of my back and feet, Cersei asked the nymphs, What'll it be tonight? something made up? We've more than enough of our own tales, Luna interjected. Perhaps we ought to tell Devani and Geoffrey our stories. I rather got the sense that the rock pool was the nymph's equivalent of the campfire I like to tell tales around in nightfalls. There was something almost ritualistic in the way they were setting about the evening. Where's it even begin? A nymph I'd not met before sighed, and I was reminded that though youth remained ever apparent on their glassy skin and in the brightness of their eyes, the nymphs had lived for almost an eternity in comparison to my years. Cersei dimmed the lights a little whispering to the fairy lanterns once more in a language that sounded as old as the turning wheel of time itself. The mood set 
a rattle, a nymph with eyes the same color as sea moss began. I can't tell you of the ocean before telling you of our own tale. We were born to the old man of the sea, Nereus. He's thought of as naught but an old myth now, and for a time the Greeks had him confused with more than a handful of better-known gods. In truth, Nereus's story came long before any of theirs. With our mother, Doris, we grew up on the rocks in the deepest depths of the Aegean Ocean. It was a happy youth, one we spent with our sisters. We are but fifteen of a family almost one hundred strong, Erato explained. Our sister, Thetis, perhaps a little older than most of us here, caught the attention of not only Zeus, but Poseidon too. As Poseidon tells the story, Zeus was so outraged when Thetis rejected his advances that he swore she would never marry a god, only a mortal man. Poseidon would have loved to believe himself Thetis's chosen companion, but even if she had chosen him, his ego would never have been able to weather the prophecy coming true. What prophecy? I pried. There was no one who hadn't heard it. The oracle declared, rather carelessly I might add, that Thetis would bear a child that would grow up to be even greater than his father. News of the prophecy travelled faster than light, and, feeling threatened, the gods used their power to ensure that Thetis fell in love with a mortal. That way, who or whatever her child was, their power would never be able to challenge that of a god. The oracle was always inserting herself where she wasn't wanted. Only fools wished their name into the oracle's so-called prophetic whisperings. Half of the time the things she foresaw never happened, and nearly all of the time her ramblings caused total chaos in Olympus, the underworld, Athens, and the oceans. In truth, things worked out rather nicely for Thetis. She bore a son, Achilles, with her husband, and lived a rather peaceful life with none of the dramatics that Zeus, Poseidon, or the lesser gods seemed to drag around with them. Half of our sisters went with Thetis to help raise Achilles and protect him. The rest of us found our way through life, learning everything we know of the world by swimming from shore to shore and up the great rivers that cut into continents. The oceans were a much more interesting place back then, when mankind couldn't make head nor tail of which ocean would lead them where, and discovered new lands almost every time they strayed from the safety of their own shorelines. The ancient Greek and Roman explorers were all far too bold for their own good. They would set sail across oceans they didn't understand on a whim, 
and follow sirens into the water. The sirens might be a little different from the ones you're imagining. The first sirens made their home in the skies, not the seas. They circled the decks of great ships, targeting explorers like Aeneas and his Trojan men. They lured the explorers into the water with a bird-like beauty they would never have seen before. On more than one occasion we have prevented Aeneas and his friends from following a siren to the lands under the sea. The winged women would soar through the skies above the boats, almost dancing through the air before they dove down into the azure waters of the Aegean, and then besotted sailors would follow. I'm quite sure if we had simply let the sirens have it their way, there wouldn't have been a Trojan War, for there would have been no Trojans left to fight in it. <laughs> Erato chortled. The world was a much younger place then. We were younger too. Another nymph sighed, before settling a little deeper into the water. We were, Luna agreed, light in her eyes as they caught Circe's. Have you heard the tale of Scylla and Glaucus? Luna asked. It's not that interesting. We needn't tell that one, Circe insisted. But it's a favourite of mine. Erato giggled before she began. The story of our sister Scylla and the mortal fisherman Glaucus, who fell in love with her, is scarcely told now. Head over heels for the nymph who rejected his advances time and time again. Glaucus sought out our dear friend Circe to create a potion that would make Scylla fall in love with him. I don't think I'd ever seen Circe flustered before. But that night, even in the relative darkness, I thought I caught her face flushing red. If Arato noticed, she didn't let on and continued with her tale. Fortunately, for all our sakes, Circe fell in love with the mortal herself and instead brewed a potion that would turn our sister into the famous rock monster she is today. It's a wonder you all managed to stay friends. Devani stifled a laugh. To be clear, I was very young when I did that, Circe huffed. Irato went on. In the end, Scylla was rather pleased with how things turned out. She had always been known for pertaining a beauty she simply didn't care about. Having been defined by her looks her entire life, she found it rather liberating to not be so perfect. She has since beaten six of Odysseus's supposed champions and lives on the Italian side of the Strait of Messina, the waterway between Sicily and Italy. Funnily enough, Glaucus never dared to go near her again and stays well clear of the strait, his business suffering greatly because of it. Seeing as our sister seems happier than ever, 
we've found it in ourselves to forgive Circe, who, as she continues to remind us, was very young at the time. She was only 800 years old, Luna chimed in, sarcasm wound up in her words. 800 is very young when you're bound to live for an eternity, Circe muttered, sinking a little deeper into the bubbling waters of the rock pool. No one minds so much anymore, but you should have heard the talk at Agir's first ball following the scandal. Agir is a Norse personification of the sea, although most of the stories of him that have made it onto land characterize him as being just as cold and temperamental as the oceans he presides over. Agir is actually a rather kind soul. He's more than hospitable, and every once in a while hosts spectacular feasts in the sunken kingdom of Pridrandal. Oh, here we go again. A nymph by the name of Kaleen sighed. He does, Lena insisted. She tells this story all the time, probably because she's the only one that's ever been invited to one of Agir's feasts, Kaleen explained. Don't be jealous, Luna preened. I'd hardly be jealous of the soggy sandwiches and seafood platter I bet he sets out every year. Kaleen laughed, and I was reminded that though the nymphs were friends, they would always be siblings first. Refusing to dignify her sister with a response, Luna continued. In any event, that night, Agir served beer brewed in a magical cauldron, some of the best I'd ever tasted. Something about the enchantment made it moorish, and perhaps a little stronger than usual, and so lips that usually kept tight began to loosen and all manner of secrets slipped out, including that of Circe's infatuation with Glaucus. Eventually, Loki, shapeshifter that he is, stole the cauldron and gifted it to the giants. The feast wrapped up rather swiftly after that, but not before I was introduced to Agir's daughters, who humans have been confusing my sisters and I with for centuries. The nine daughters of Agir each embody a different element of the ocean. Perhaps you've seen them? They will no doubt have cropped up in human history. Usually their story is twinned with ours. Sometimes it's even suggested that our story was inspired by theirs. Which is ludicrous, really, because I am almost a millennium older than even the eldest of Agir's nine daughters and almost the entire continent of Europe separates our youth in the Aegean from theirs in the Baltic Sea. We saw them all not long ago when Poseidon finally married Salacia, Luna explained. Actually, I think he goes by Neptune now, Galene muttered. Well, the Greeks still know him as Poseidon, Circe spoke up her voice thawing the frost that had bloomed between the sisters before she went on. Most of the old gods have been called more than one name over the centuries. Sometimes they're rather taken with their new names. It keeps them relevant. It flatters them, and it makes it much harder for the rest of us to keep track of whose past wrongdoings are whose. 
Poseidon in particular had a reputation I imagine he was keen to shake off before he married Celestia, the Roman goddess of the sea. Celestia presides over the depths of the ocean and doubtless makes light work of understanding the darker depths of Poseidon's character. They're a perfect match, really. Celestia herself is as in tune with the moon as the ocean itself is. She feels more deeply than the Aegean, and her temper is as changeable as the Pacific tides. I've always found her to run rather hot and cold with people, and Poseidon is just the same. The ocean is quite the force to be reckoned with, and as a pairing, I imagine they will be too. No expense was spared for the wedding celebrations. They tied the knot in a sunken temple in the city of Atlantis. Salatia wore gold, as is customary, and Poseidon set down his trident long enough to share the first dance with his new wife. It would have been the perfect day if Triton hadn't been invited. For a merman whose hair is always wet, I've never once seen a strand of it fall out of place or get tangled up. In fact, for a man who's half fish, he always manages to smell impeccable. Luna sighed. Luna has always burned a torch for Triton, Cersei said, doing her best not to smile. Well, not anymore, Luna resolved. He's arrogant, conceited, and if you ask me, his scales don't shine like they used to. She muttered, swiping her black hair off her shoulders and sitting up a little taller in the water. Glad that's settled, Cersei said tightly, and I got the sense she had heard it all before. They do say the line between love and hate is a fine one, Galene teased, and even as heat rose to her cheeks and betrayed her true feelings, Luna did her best to change the subject. I'm surprised they hosted the wedding in those parts anyway. Celestia has always been quite scared of the Jormungandr serpent. What's that? Devani asked, doing a better job than I was at keeping track of the mythology that was winding together into a history that finally made sense. The Norse people believe that the Jormungandr sea serpent is so big that it is wrapped around the entire earth, biting its tail between its teeth to stay curled around the planet. The serpent is, in fact, two feet long and behaves more like a Labrador than a fearsome sea creature. One of Vigir's daughters takes care of it. It's quite sweet, really. It plays fetch with pebbles if you throw them, and tends to eat reeds and seaweed, not demigods or water nymphs like Vigir likes to tell people. For all the stories, it's actually quite safe out there in the deep blue these days. We've all had a long time to learn how to get along. Luna surmised, pausing to take a breath before an idea struck her. You should come with us. We're going to see Happy in a few months. He's the ancient Egyptian god of fertility. The River Nile was once the lifeblood of the Egyptian empire, and it was Happy's job to flood it. In bursting the riverbank every year, Happy ensured that the land around it stayed fertile, even in the arid Egyptian heat. 
he's one of the kindest souls you could ever hope to meet. You ought to join us, Luna insisted. With their tales seemingly told in full, Devani and I found ourselves feeling more than a little exhausted. I rode us back upstream as early morning began to intrude on the perfect calm of the night once more. By the time we arrived in nightfalls, Devani was sound asleep in the back of the boat. I took her in my arms and carried her onto the beach where we fell asleep side by side and slipped into deep dreams of an even deeper ocean.